One problem that we face when confronting somebody with the truth is that the other person may respond to us with denial. When faced with something that is unpleasant, something that is difficult to admit, some people refused to see the obvious, and they overlook the inevitable by refusing to admit the truth. And Jesus certainly encountered that many times as he spoke the truth in love. He confronted, as we've been looking at this issue of him confronting the religious leaders of the day, and he spoke to those religious leaders of his generation. He warned them of judgment that was coming to them and to that generation. He warned them about their corruption, about the hypocrisy that they exhibited, the lawlessness in their lives that was hidden and oftentimes kept under the wraps, the greed that was in their hearts. And he indicated to them that they would no longer, these issues would no longer go unpunished. And if you have your Bible, we encourage you to turn there or use the Pew Bible, page 1174. And we'll pick up where we left off two weeks ago at the end of chapter 23 in Matthew's Gospel. The next to last verse that Jesus spoke here, he warned about the consequences of the spiritual fraud in the people who were the leaders uh, of the Jewish people, their religious leaders there in Jerusalem. He said in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 23, verse 38, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now that's quite a statement to make and one that was greeted with or responded to with denial. They couldn't make sense of that statement. He's standing there in the impressive temple courtyard, and the highly profitable religious enterprise, which operated out of that temple complex in Jerusalem, Jesus essentially said, is soon going to be destroyed. It is no longer going to function as it has for hundreds of years. And on one level, it's not too surprising that these people did not heed his warning. They assumed that since the temple was such an awe-inspiring, such an impressive building, that God would never permit its destruction. You see, Herod the Great, the Roman ruler, had begun a massive construction project to rebuild and expand the temple complex that they were currently uh, enjoying at that moment in the first century. The original temple, constructed during the reign of Solomon, which we read earlier in our scripture reading, that was about nine centuries before Jesus lived and walked, that was destroyed by the Babylonian army in the year 586 B.C. At the end of a 70-year captivity, some of the Jews returned back from faraway lands that they were taken captive in. They came back and they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah, and then they rebuilt the temple under the leadership of Ezra. And this now, where they were standing on that occasion, um, and Zerubbabel also was involved in helping to rebuild that temple, this temple now where Jesus was in the first century was the temple we called Herod the Great's temple because he rebuilt the one that had been sort of left to uh, fend for itself for a number of centuries uh, after it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra. And so Herod the Great had his workers quarry these massive stones, foundational stones, 
and he put them in place with tremendous amount of engineering and ingenuity. We still don't know exactly how they pulled it off. These stones were so big and huge. And he did so in order to create a much larger courtyard around the temple. And some of the enormous, what we call Herodian stones, measuring 20 to maybe 40 feet in length, are massive and they weigh maybe 100 tons. You can still see those stones in Jerusalem today. And the expanded courtyard in which Herod built was measuring about 1,000 feet by 1,000 feet, which means, just to give you an idea, for those of you who have a certain subject on your mind today, it's three football fields by three football fields. Think about that for a minute. That's quite a huge distance of the square that's wide open here uh, on which you find the temple itself. Herod the Great's temple was twice the size of Solomon's temple. And this massive building project had begun before Jesus was born. It has continued on now, even during Jesus' ministry, in smaller fashion. And according to John 2.20, the temple renovation and expansion project had been going on for 46 years. And so by the third year of Jesus' public ministry, the Herodian temple in Jerusalem was believed to be one of the most splendid structures in all of antiquity. The temple itself was constructed out of polished limestone and in places was covered with gold leaf. And when the sun shone on it, people would literally be blinded by the brilliant glory that would reflect off of that impressive building. No wonder so many people assumed the temple would never be destroyed. And yet that's exactly what Jesus taught in our text this morning, Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Listen carefully now to what the, the statement of denial, the, the, being very impressed with these buildings, they didn't catch what Jesus was saying at all, and then he clarifies and makes it very clear what's going to happen. Verses 1 and 2. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, I'm going to put a little parenthesis here. I'm going to read you from chapter 13 of Mark's gospel, verse 1, and add a little detail. One of his disciples said to Jesus, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Back into now verse 2. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, I'm going to stop here because I didn't want to go further into what the rest of the chapter deals with, but the question I want us to look at this morning is, what did a destroyed temple signify? What is the significance of Jesus' statement that says the entire temple complex is coming down? I'm going to give you at least two answers to the question today. There are probably other things we could have touched on, but I'm going to boil it down to two for our consideration this morning. First is this. Destruction of Herod's temple took place as an act of judgment. Jesus' prophetic message about the destruction of the temple was similar to a number of Hebrew prophets that had preceded him uh, six centuries earlier. And the one I'm going to focus on this morning, and there could have been a number of examples I could have given you, but I'm going to just focus on Jeremiah, who proclaimed an unpopular message in his time to the people of his generation 
who were unconcerned about this widespread moral and spiritual corruption. They believed, as many people did in the first century, that as long as the temple stood in Jerusalem, they were safe. And I'm going to look now at Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. It's page 905 in your pew Bible, page 905. I'm going to bounce around a little bit in Jeremiah, but chapter 5, verse 30. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? And then skipping over to chapter 6, verse 13, page 906. Everyone is greedy for gain. And from the, false, from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. What a sad commentary about the situation that the religious leaders of that era. They have healed the wound of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. In other words, their conscience doesn't bother them a bit about all the things they're doing to offend God. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds. And watch this. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, this temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a house of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Just from that reading, you get the idea that the people who were there thought, as long as the temple's here, we're fine. There's nothing going to happen here. Jeremiah, all your silly warnings about judgment are ridiculous because, look, the temple's right here. God's not going to do anything to us. That's the general feeling you get. And there are a number of comparisons between Jeremiah's warnings and Jesus' warnings. Both Jeremiah and Jesus repeatedly admonished those who were going through the motions in their religious exercises with empty religiosity. And here they are going through the motion, and they feel absolutely secure, and they feel absolutely nothing wrong, uh, live that situation in their self-righteous condition. They're not bothered by it a bit. And both Jeremiah and Jesus told a number of compelling stories and analogies, and Jesus particularly with parables, to try to help their respective audiences be aware of their self-righteousness and of the hypocrisy and understand why the temple was about to be destroyed. The temple in Jeremiah's day, which was what we call Solomon's temple, and the temple in Jesus' day, which we call Herod's temple. If you look at Matthew chapter 22, which we have looked at in previous weeks, Jesus told a parable there, and he compared the kingdom of heaven to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, the prince. Now, these don't happen very often. This is the biggest event that would have happened in that lifetime of those people. And the parable startled the original listener or the original reader as Jesus told it. People would have, would have, would have gasped when he told that story because he, as he tells it, 
the outrageous behavior of these people who've been invited to a royal wedding reception was, they just dismissed it. Just said, eh, I'm not interested. I don't think I'm going to go. Tremendous privilege, and yet they're just disregarding it, going on as normal, going their no- doing their normal business uh, endeavors. And he goes on to say that other people not only just didn't think much about it and just ignored it, other people said, eh, I don't like this king, and I'm tired of living under his reign, and I'm going to sort of abuse or kill some of his servants. And look at the response in chapter 22, verse 7 of Matthew. The king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was the response of the king of heaven to the majority of the people of the nation of Israel who rejected the king's son. In the days of Jeremiah, Solomon's temple was dismantled and destroyed by a foreign army because of the idolatrous worship that took place under the oversight of corrupt religious leaders. And now 40 years after Jesus died, move ahead now with the time frame, here's Jesus, and 40 years later, Herod's temple was dismantled and destroyed by a foreign army, the Roman army, because its leaders there in Jerusalem were false prophets and had rejected Jesus, the Messiah, the true prophet from God. Herod's temple was dismantled because of the religious enterprise it, had, it was housing had become apostate. It no longer tra- taught the truth. It no longer practiced the truth. And therefore, it came down. Now, hear me out. All false religions will one day similarly be destroyed. The scriptures are clear. Those who built the Tower of Babel, those who worshipped at the various statues of Baal, those who worshipped Dagon, the fish god we read about in the Hebrew scriptures, those who worshipped creation, the stars and the various planets, the sun, those who proclaim a false gospel, who who attempt to earn their own righteousness by doing good works, will one day face everlasting destruction. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, that those who are the enemies of the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through Christ, through trust, trusting in Christ alone, will be destroyed. He says, as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction. Recently we've read in the news, I imagine most of you have seen it in the month of January, that the cruise ship, the Costa Concordia, an Italian cruise ship that was top of the line, it was estimated at being at costing over half a billion dollars to build. This magnificent ocean liner hit a rock and tore a 160-foot gash in the hull of this impressive ship and took on water. Eventually, they tried to steer it in closer to shore and eventually, as you know, capsized, just sort of turned over sideways and as they're immersed in the water. It would have sunk all the way if they'd not come into shallow land. Now, I use the illustration because it teaches the principle here that Jesus Christ 
is the rock on which false religions will run aground and capsize. Every single one of them. Indeed, there is no eternal safety, there is no eternal security for those who rely upon human wisdom, good works, outward acts of piety, and whatever else you want to fill in the blank in other forms of human religion that people feel so comfortable and secure in, it will not serve them well in providing safety or security because Christ himself someday will ruin, will completely uh, eliminate and destroy all false religions. Only he and those who follow him will last. That's the first point here. There's a day of judgment coming for those who reject Christ, those who ignore him, those who turn their back on him. And clearly those in that first century, they hated Jesus enough to seek to destroy him. Now, what's the second point here? And this is very important because it goes beyond just a very obvious statement of, of judgment. But there's a very important point here about a massive change taking place in biblical history. And that is the second point as to the significance of the destruction of Herod's temple is it took place to signify a radical change in God's economy. A radical change in God's economy. Now that's an interesting thing to affirm because despite the vast amount of money that had been invested in Herod's temple and the millions of pilgrims that would gather there three times a year to celebrate the high and holy feasts, God never intended that temple building in Jerusalem to be a permanent center of worship. The temple was meant to be symbolic. Symbolic. The temple could never contain God, as we heard earlier in the scripture reading. And that was clearly a message that's repeated throughout scripture a number of places, including Stephen, who who is the first martyr in the early church. Here he is declaring his sermon before they picked up stones to kill him. In Acts 7, he says, Solomon built a house for God. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Paul said the same thing to the crowd gathered there, sophisticated people there in Athens, when he said, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So the temple and the various elements found in it were designed to depict spiritual realities that far exceeded anything that the best human craftsman could ever make. The symbols in the temple reminded worshipers that God is to be approached on his terms. It is to remind them that they are to, uh, to, uh, to come and approach God on the basis of a substitutionary atonement or sacrifice. And the temple existed as long as it did because it served as a shadow of the reality that Jesus Christ himself finally fulfilled. And up until Jesus, sacrifices of bulls and goats continued on and on because the ultimately effective sacrifice had not yet been made. You say, how do you know all this? Well, read the book of Hebrews is a great way of understanding this, this understanding of a massive change that occurred after Jesus came. But chapter 9 particularly is very important on this principle. It makes clear that the symbolic items in the temple and the tabernacle were unable to make the worshiper perfect in their conscience because they were regulations that were imposed for a time. Look at this in chapter 9 of 
Hebrews, you can follow along uh, page 1428, verse 24 in, in Hebrews 9. The author of Hebrews went on to insist that Jesus was the reality to which the elements of the temple or tabernacle pointed. I'm reading verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. What's he saying here? He didn't enter into the massive, impressive temple of Herod or Solomon's temple or some uh, sophisticated tabernacle they used to have. A mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. But now once at the consummation, verse 26, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What does that mean? Jesus fulfilled all the elements prefigured in the tabernacle and temple system. And Jesus declared as he was dying on the cross, it is finished. It is complete. It's all been done now. And his death and subsequent resurrection provided an all-sufficient atoning sacrifice for every repentant sinner who trusts in Christ and his work on their behalf. No wonder the temple was destroyed. No wonder it was destroyed. No other sacrifices were needed. The temple was obsolete. No longer was there a need for an altar anymore. That is huge, my friend, to understand the massive shift of what's happening. Unfortunately, there are some of the most impressive cathedrals you'll find all around the world contain altars in those cathedrals on which priests who stand in front of the people as a separated priest perform bloodless sacrifices on those altars continuously. Missing the key element of this radical change in God's economy that says there's no need for any more sacrifices. Christ came once for all. His sacrifice was sufficient. Indeed, priests are no longer needed to represent sinners before God. The Bible says that those who come to faith in Christ and who repent of their sins and trust Christ, they themselves become priests who worship God directly themselves. Through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is the high priest. Who forever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to him in faith. He ever lives. Hebrews 7.25 So it's very important to understand that the reason the temple was no longer needed is because of what Christ had done. And along with that I would just say Jesus also not only what he did but who he was. Jesus himself was the greater than this temple because he himself is God and in him is all the glory of God. He was full of grace and truth. And so we read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus' bold claim when he referred to himself, he said, something greater than the temple is here. That is a radical statement for somebody to make in Jewish first century culture. Jesus says, something greater than the temple is right here, referring to himself. The majestic beauty of those buildings in that temple complex could never compare to the absolutely astounding, eternal, divine glory that Jesus possessed as the Son of God. 
And Paul described Jesus with these, with these words in Colossians chapter 2. In Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. So the Shekinah glory that we read about in scripture reading there was at one time indwelt the tabernacle and the temple had long since departed. And Jesus himself is the Shekinah glory. And there he was standing in the, in the, in the uh, area of the temple complex and they all wanted to get rid of him. And while only the high priest was permitted to approach the Holy of Holies once a year and only then through his sacrifice, because of the atoning blood of Jesus, hear me out now, because of the atoning blood of Jesus, we and those who are believers in Christ, we have continuous access to God again and again and again and again to receive mercy, to find grace to help us in time of need. That's the gospel, my friend. We don't need a temple. We have access to God himself through Jesus. Praise God and hallelujah. So much more I could say about that, but I want to touch on our last point here about why it is significant of this changing of God's economy and why that temple no longer was needed. It's because of what Christ accomplished. It was because of, of who Christ is. It also was because the church of Jesus Christ is the temple of the living God. You say, oh, come on, that's crazy. How could, that's not my opinion. That's what Scripture teaches. I've shown you some Scriptures as to how you can verify that. First of all, well, I want to point out a verse that may not be in your notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, written in a city that was known for tremendous immorality, all sorts of sexual sin, all sorts of prostitutes associated with cultic worship, going on right there in Corinth. And Paul writes to the believers there and specifically to those who are tempted to say, well, having sex is just like eating food. It's what we're designed for. It's just a biological thing. So why would God have a problem with it? And Paul writes and responds to that and he says, listen to this. Don't you know, implying, yes, you should know better than that. Don't you know that your body, chapter 6, verse 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it's improper for you to engage yourself in that kind of immoral behavior. You yourself have housed in you the Holy Spirit and your body is like a temple. That's completely radical. God living inside of you, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So therefore, why would you live in such an immoral way? Secondly, the individual believer's body is the temple of the Spirit. Secondly, the local church is the temple of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. We are the temple of the living God. You mean this collection of people here? The world looks at us and just laughs. Says, you've got to be kidding me. Come on. But what we realize is that because of Jesus Christ and his wonderful work of redemption, people like you and me are people that God has changed and he is pulling us together like living stones that he's putting together in close proximity to himself and therefore building this amazing structure of the church, the local church right here in Lake Grove. And Paul writes, do you know how inappropriate it is? 
ever try to destroy the local church. Don't teach what's false. Don't act in ways that destroy the reputation of Christ and his people here. This is the temple of the living God. He's right here among us in our community of faith. And then to expand that even further, the universal church, in an amazing passage there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, which would take a whole other sermon to unpack everything he, he piles in here. But just let me say this. Every believer all around the world is included in the universal church. And all of those believers, because they are intercontinental, they are international in makeup, it doesn't make a sense to have a local building where everyone has to gather. There's only one place to gather in Jerusalem. It makes sense now because this is the new society that God has made. Therefore, we are the people of God, and he is building up his church. Verse 20 of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 20 of Ephesians, the universal church of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Here's the truth. Those massive stones, the Herodian stones, we have something even more massive and heavy duty. It will not be changed. It will not be destroyed. It's the truth that came through the apostles and the prophets. And on that foundation, we have Christ Jesus as the cornerstone on which sets off and everything else now is in relationship to that cornerstone in those who are in Christ, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God by the Spirit. You get the sense of the triune God at work in building this temple where he dwells and where his glory is being revealed around all of the different cultures and people groups and language groups of the world is as God's people are coming into awareness of the greatness of their God and beginning to see transformation in their hearts and lives, it becomes more obvious the great glory of the God that they reflect being seen in transformed lives all around the world. doesn't matter what culture, what language, doesn't matter where you live, that's where the temple continues to be built. What an amazing, amazing change for the for the amplification and expansion of the glory of God, not to have some temple that Herod made, but that you and I have the privilege of being the temple of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, we know that in terms of what the world says about the church, we're not very impressive. There's no kind of blinding glory that you can see reflecting off any of us. We know that this building is something that we don't worship. We don't. Uh, we appreciate having a worship center, Lord, but we know this building itself is not holy. But you've called us to be holy people who reflect your glory wherever we are. Whatever we're involved in, we are the, we are the temple of the living God. And in us, the Spirit of God dwells. Lord, we pray that these truths might cause us to be all the more amazed by your grace, by the supremacy and the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us on the cross and his resurrection. And Lord, if there's someone here today who has never really understood that it's not where you are that will make you holy, it's who you know, I pray that you would draw them even today to Christ as we celebrate what he's done for us gathered around his table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.